So the camera is fixed on a large safe. Fairly large safe that's large enough to fit a human being. In fact, a man had just gotten into the safe and the safe was locked. And around the safe was strapped a large chain that also was locked. And the camera is focused on this safe. All of a sudden, the camera begins to pan back out, out of the room into a hallway. As the camera moves out of the room into the hallway, there's another smaller image, another camera that's been fixated on that safe. It's not moving, and you see the whole time that that safe remains locked as the camera moves down, back in the hallway, down the hallway, down a flight of stairs, down and turn around another hallway coming back the other way. You see people beginning to run past the camera outside of the building and the camera continues to pan out backwards. It's now out of the building and it pans back away from the building, first 10, then 20, then 30 yards away and you begin to see the whole whole picture of the whole building, a five foot or five story brick building. Must be an apartment complex. There's a timer that's counting down, 90, 89, 87. The camera continues to pan back even further away from the building until about 100 yards away from the building. There is a tabletop rested on two sawhorses. You can see all around this tabletop, both underneath and on top. And on top of this tabletop is a smaller three by three foot orange sheet with the black X right in the middle. The camera pans back just far enough that within the screen you see both the tabletop and the building as it continues to count down 10, 9, 8. And as that timer hits zero, the entire building implodes in on itself, kicking up, kicking up dust and debris and a cloud of smoke. And the camera just sits there for about a good 20 seconds, 30 seconds. As the dust begins to settle... Underneath that orange sheet, it begins to move, and out emerges a man. I was eight years old, and when I saw that, I believed in magic. And that man that emerged was David Copperfield. I believed that David Copperfield was some kind of other human being, that he was able to do the impossible, that all of us, ordinary people, would have absolutely been destroyed unable to get out of that safe, but somehow this guy was able to kind of make his body into some sort of matter and was able to sort of re, you know, dematerialize himself and then rematerialize himself underneath this sheet. I believed in the impossible. And then as I got older, I realized that magicians don't really have magic. They're called illusionists, and their magic really is just very elaborate tricks. As I got older, I began to look not for magic, but for the trick within the magic. Well, we have and are in this series called the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is a, a very simple, straightforward, um, ancient creed that uh, Christianity has used in order to teach and instruct its people. And it lays forward some of the most basic doctrines of the Christian faith. And the part of the creed that we're in today is this. It says this. He, Jesus, was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We see this, uh, this creed is um, 
affirmed in Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew writes this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It has been known as the incarnation of Jesus, that God the Son came to be on earth as a man, that he was born as a God-man. This is what the creed puts before us, that there is a person that was conceived within a virgin's womb and that this person was both God and man. But what do we make of this? Is this really God actually able to defy human science and physics and biology and actually able to create that which is outside of our ability to understand? Or is this a doctrine that we just sort of dismiss. Bishop Shelby Spong, John Shelby Spong says this, he calls the incarnation of Jesus the entrance myth into the Christian religion. The resurrection being the exit myth and the incarnation of Christ being the entrance myth, meaning it's not true. That there's a lot of things that we can read about Jesus and his life and he was a good man, but certainly he is not this God-man that both the scriptures and the Apostles' Creed puts before us. And for us, whether or not we call ourselves followers of Jesus or we're standing on the outside of the Christian faith and we're looking into it, it is, it is something that we have to consider. Do we affirm that Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived in the power of the Holy Spirit? And then to ask, not only do we believe it, but why does it matter? And that's the focus of what we're going to be uh, addressing this morning is why does it matter that we would affirm that Jesus was born of a virgin and born in the power of the Holy Spirit? What difference does it make to us and to our day? Well, the big idea this morning is this. Because Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, he did all the scriptures say that he did. And he secured a complete salvation for humanity. Therefore, you can rest. So Jesus Christ being truly God, truly man, did everything that we find and read in the scriptures. He did it all. He also secured for humanity a complete salvation of their sins. Therefore, you and I, we are able to rest. And so we're going to take a look at this this doctrine, this creed, and how it is that it fleshes itself out and how we understand who Jesus is, the salvation that he offers us, and then therefore the salvation that we both live in and receive and rest in. So first up, Jesus is truly God, truly man. Therefore, all that the scriptures report about him is true. So we've all seen this guy. He's the most interesting man in the world. And when he occasionally drinks an adult beverage, it's always dosa keys. He's the silver fox. He's the guy that's always surrounded by beautiful women, always talking about these awesome adventures, uh, these uh, courageous things that he's done in his life. He is cool. He is confident. He's the man that every single one of us men want to be. 
he's the most interesting man in the world. Well, really, he's not. Jesus is. That for over 2,000 years, history has wrestled with this person of Jesus and who he is. And whether you're, it's not just a Christian religion, but if you're Muslim or if you're Jewish, different people have had their own take on who Jesus is and what do we make of him. And when we read about him in the scriptures, we are confronted with a very dynamic person. I think within our day and age, we probably like to maybe more consider Jesus as kind of a, uh, uh, an American Western version of Mahatma Gandhi, or maybe Mr. Rogers. Jesus wants to come and read your children a bedtime story and play with puppets. He wants you to be nice to your neighbors and live a good life. But the Jesus in the scriptures is much more than that. In fact, as human beings, we are uh, confronted with a Christ in the gospels that is so dynamic that it is hard not to want to dismiss either, either his divine nature or his human nature. In fact, there is a, uh, a group called the Jesus Seminar who overtly did what a lot of us do inadvertently was they actually literally took the Gospels of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they went through it, and they were looking for the historical Jesus. And what they did is they, they dismissed anything that was supernatural about him. And they went by with a black marker and marked those things out of the Gospel. Well, that certainly can't be true. There's no way that a man could do this or do that. And so what they did is they cut the Gospels up, and they gave us a distilled version of a very good moral teacher. But the Gospels report a Jesus to us that is very different than that. That we're confronted with, is this who he really was? Well, in the Gospels, we see both a human as human can be and also a man that has all the divine rights and prerogatives of God himself. That Jesus, as, as human as human can be, he's ordinary. He's not particularly attractive. He, he's, he's a blue-collar worker. He's, he's a carpenter. By even his own family, he's easily dismissed. In fact, his family call him crazy because of the things that he claims about himself. People in his own hometown didn't believe that he could perform miracles. They said, there's no way that Jesus, the son of Joseph, can perform these miracles. He's just a carpenter. We see in scriptures that Jesus is a man that got hungry and tired. He got angry and frustrated. He suffered pain. He expressed compassion he wept consider this jesus in the scriptures was both mocked and spit upon i mean in the scriptures jesus is put forward as god himself and who what human being thinks or could tell a narrative story that a person would spit upon god and yet christ as a man was spit upon he is as human as human can be and yet also he has all the divine attributes and divine rights of God himself. Jesus does the impossible. He heals people. Not your LASIK surgery, but by actually healing people who are born blind by speaking. He raises multiple people from the dead. He casts out demons he preaches and speaks with authority. In fact, he claims to have authority over God's own law. What human being does that? 
In fact, he says of himself, he says, I am the fulfillment of all of God's law. Jesus claims to forgive from the divine perspective, forgive human sin. Now, by way of illustration, if you can imagine that you robbed a bank and I came along and said, I forgive you for robbing that bank. You laugh at me. That'd be meaningless. I have no authority to forgive you of that act. But Christ comes along and forgives human beings for every act that they've done. Because he gives the divine forgiveness. Christ is not Mr. Rogers. He is not Mahatma Gandhi. He is both fully human in the Gospels and fully divine. And because Jesus is born of a woman and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is able to do everything that is proclaimed in the scriptures. Secondly, because Jesus is truly God and truly man, he secures for you, for humanity, a complete salvation. Who Jesus is tells us what he's capable of doing. Now, we think this of anybody. Who we believe a person to be is what we believe that they're capable to do. Who we believe a person is is what we believe that they're capable to do. When I need my taxes done, I go to my you know, CPA certified tax advisor and I have him do my taxes. And when I need prescription medication, I go to my family doctor and have him or her prescribe medication for myself and for my family. And I don't switch the two. I don't go to my doctor asking him or her to file my taxes. I don't go to my tax person asking them to prescribe me medication. I don't have either one of them pour me a new cement driveway. We all perceive someone to be who, we, who they are, and based on who we think that they are, that's what they, we think that they're capable of doing. There's a really uh, set of funny um, commercials from Holiday Inn where uh, it's in a, um, uh, a, a, a surgery room, and one of the uh, doctors, you know, has got his mask uh, um, on his face, and he just got done sewing up a patient. He's like, all right. He's like, we're all done here. And the nurse turns to him and says, so Dr. Stewart, like, we're all, we're all good. And he takes his mask off. He says, I'm not Dr. Stewart. He's like, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn hotel. That basically, if this guy stayed in a Holiday Inn, he's able to do everything that he's able to do. But we know that that's ridiculous. But Jesus is God. As it says in Matthew, because he's conceived of the Holy Spirit, he is able to do and bring salvation to humanity. I think we imagine church history at times being something similar to like when my kids fight over who gets to have the blue plate for dinner. They don't want the pink plate. Everyone wants to fight for the coveted blue plate. And that when we imagine the church getting together in church history and, and having to have a tension and conflict over these doctrines, we imagine that it's petty. But it's significant because the church throughout its history wrestled with how do we correctly understand Christ? Because if we don't understand him correctly, then we misunderstand salvation and how that applies to us. The Apostles' Creed came about roughly around the second century and began to be taught in the third and fourth century as a, a Christian educational tool. But it wasn't until the fifth century that the church actually landed its plane on how it was going to articulate the nature of Jesus. 
how is he both divine and how is he human? And there's different schools of thought. Some saw him more God, less human. Some saw him more human, less God. Some saw him as more of like a little g God. One that was created by God, but was also powerful like God. And some saw him more as like a superhuman superhero. Well, in 451 at the Council of uh, Chalcedon, the church landed on this, that Jesus is one person in two natures. One person, one complete person, but with two full natures, that he is truly God and truly man. And that Jesus' godness, one, that he has everything, whatever we would say that this is what God is, that he has all of that in substance. But in his humanness, it doesn't take away from his godness. And he also has everything that makes a human a human. And in his godness, it doesn't take away his humanity. He is both fully together, both fully God and fully man. And this was essential for the church because the church was wanting and needing to wrestle, needed to wrestle with what is salvation and what is Jesus able to save us from? And how is it that he's able to deliver the salvation to us? You see, I think it's easier to, for us to accept watered-down versions of Jesus, the, the, the Mr. Rogers version of Jesus, because we don't understand correctly what we need to be saved from. I think the modern perspective of salvation could be summed up something like this, that God wants us to be happy. He wants you to be happy and me to be happy. He wants us to live a good life. And in order for you to be happy and me to be happy and for us to live a good life, we need to be good people to one another. And so God understands that we want to try our best to try to be good people to one another. And so long as we're trying our best to be good people to one another, that he will somehow cover whatever is lacking and make sure that he gives us a good and blessed life. And in that perspective of salvation, I don't need a God-man. I just need a good moral teacher. I need someone who's able to live a little bit better of a life than me, that I have something I can look up to and strive for. But that's not what Jesus said that he came to do. And that's not the salvation that the Bible, that the scriptures put, for, put forward for us that we need. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says this. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost, of who I am the worst that Paul said that Christ came to save the world of their sin. And he said of himself, he said, of all sinners, I am the worst of all sinners. I am the most egregious of all offenders. And I need the salvation of Jesus in my life. I need the forgiveness of Jesus. We imagine that Jesus walked the earth and only said really nice, polite things. But on multiple occasions, he called people wicked. John, John 8, 24, John three sixteen, Luke eleven thirteen. Jesus said offensive things about human nature because he knew and said that we are wicked, that we are corrupt, that we are broken, that we are estranged from God. And that doesn't mean that we're not capable of good because of the divine image in us. But Christ certainly pointed to us and said that we have, uh, we have an eternal problem. We have an eternal corruption about us that makes us unfit for the presence of God. And so what does humanity need? Humanity needs a man 
a person that's able to actually live out the perfect righteous law of God. But we also need a divine being that can actually endure the divine eternal wrath of God for the justice of all wrongs for all throughout humanity. We can barely bear the weight of our own sin, of our own judgment. In fact, we spend a lot of our time trying to ignore or hide the fact that we are guilty. And yet Christ allows us to put these things in full light. Why? Because he's the one that is also able to take your guilt upon his own shoulders. He's the one that lived a perfectly righteous life that his credit would then be extended to you. And not just to you, but to every person who would receive him throughout the history of the world. You see, we need a man, a God-man that was conceived in the power of the Holy Spirit and born of a Virgin Mary because we both need God who is perfectly righteous and a man who can stand in our place. And this is Christ who delivered that full salvation to us. So lastly, because Jesus is truly God and truly man, yes, in the scriptures, he is exactly who the scriptures put for us as he is. He also delivered to us a complete salvation. But lastly, you and I are able to rest in the salvation. You and I are able to rest in that salvation. Jesus says of himself in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and lean and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When I was in high school, my mom finally bought for the family a hammock. I mean, I had been asking for a hammock for a little bit of time because I just imagined having a hammock in my backyard would just be the best. To be able to, in the cool summer, underneath a shaded tree, to be able to, you know, kick my feet up and just sort of relax, kind of sink in the hammock and just be. And finally, my mom took a cue and bought a hammock. We hung the thing up and it was gorgeous. It was wonderful to be able to lay on the thing. I think somehow we imagine in our minds that salvation is sort of a a leaning on Jesus. It's a cooperative thing. Jesus comes and supplies a little bit of his grace that we need, and we come and we do our best and try our hardest. And really, we bring nothing to the table when it comes to our salvation. Christ has offered us the opportunity to rest in him, to actually not lean in him, but to lay on him as if we were to lay on a hammock. Christ invites you to stop doing one of the two things that all of us do. We either, one, pretend that we're better than we really are. We are always telling ourselves that we're better than we really are. Why? Because we are trying to strive to be good enough for heaven. And man, I know I mess up from time to time, and but I'm, I'm probably good enough to make it in. Or others of us run the rat race, never feeling good enough feeling the dog of guilt and shame on our back. So we always feel like we have to be making it up to God, making it up to God, making it up to God. And Christ came in God's power to save you of your sins that you might actually lay on him. You might actually hammock upon his salvation. 
your life does not have to be about pretending that you're something that you're not. And it doesn't have to be about striving for something you can't accomplish. But about actually trusting and laying in who he is. The Apostles' Creed, that Christ was conceived in the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, this is a baseline doctrine. It is a foundational doctrine that builds upon the work of Christ that we can put our trust and our hope in. Is Christ a myth or is he a mystery? David Copperfield, just a couple years ago, was taken to court and he had to reveal his secrets. And in court, he said, Yes, they are a bunch of tricks. It's a lot of hard work, but tricks nonetheless. And so when the Apostles' Creed tells us, when the Scriptures tell us that Jesus was born of our virgin, do we say it's tricks? We're trying to find out how it is that the church deceived themselves into believing this thing? Or did Christ do the impossible? Is he the divine mystery? A mystery that we can rest in. Karl Barth says this. He says the incarnation is a mystery that can be contemplated, acknowledged, worshipped, and confessed as such. It cannot be solved or transformed into a non-mystery. Yes, we believe in a mystery. Do you believe in this mystery? Do you believe that Christ is who he is, that he did all that he did, and that he's capable of delivering to you a complete salvation, that you would actually be able to finally rest in him? Let me pray for us. Jesus, sometimes our words lead us into belief. Our words lead us into being able to rest in you. And Lord, when it comes to these impossible things, that you are both truly God and truly man, Lord, there are doubts. There are times that we're looking for the trick. We're looking for what's behind the screen door, because there's no way it can be this good. There's no way that you can be who you really are. But Lord, would you give us a grace that we could hold on to, look in, entertain, enter into the divine mystery that you did a little over 2,000 years ago. You were born onto this world and that you were fully God and that you came here with one express purpose, to deliver salvation to humanity because you are capable of doing such. In your name, Jesus, amen.